The Israel-Hamas war has proven to be a particularly fraught conflict on social media. Finding out what's happening on the ground has been complicated by a number of issues. The divisiveness of the debate on both sides and how entrenched each viewpoint is, the ease with which alternative narratives with faked information are broadcast, and the immediate emotional responses that content can trigger, and the changes made to major social platforms, including Twitter, now X, that make it less able to respond to manipulation. So what can we do about this, and how can we find verifiable truth in the fog of war? That's what our guest this episode, Valerie Wirtschafter, a fellow in foreign policy in the Artificial Intelligence Initiative at the Brookings Institution, helps us navigate. I'm Chris Stokel-Walker, and for Human Rights Organization Article 19, this is Tectonic. Barry Wirtschafter, thank you for joining us here on Tectonic. Thank you so much for having me. You've been doing some really excellent work trying to find the truth in amongst what's going on on social media at the minute, particularly in light of the Israel-Hamas conflict. And I think it may be kind of interesting and insightful for our audience to, to maybe hear about when in this conflict that's been going on as we record for kind of seven weeks or so now, you first encountered your first bit of dis or misinformation on social media around it. Do you remember <laughs> that fateful day? I mean, I think the the very beginning, you know, it's kind of one of these things where, uh, and I describe it as like a supply and demand problem where the demand for information is so high and the supply is so low that kind of what fills this space is just a bit of nonsense. This single post got 2.6 million views. It was said to show a Hamas fighter shooting down an Israeli war helicopter in Gaza. We did a reverse image search on it, and that found that it was actually from a video game called Armour 3. And there was this post claiming Israel bombed and destroyed an old Greek Orthodox church in Gaza. It has something like 3 million views. But the church itself said it hasn't been touched. This video supposedly shows festival goers running for their lives during an attack by Hamas, but it was filmed during a Bruno Mars concert. Um, whether that's old video game clips or old war clips or old photos or generated photos, edited photos, decontextualized things, all of that kind of fills this void of information in the absence of verifiable content. And so I think it was one of these things that was just from the very beginning. Um, and it, this isn't kind of a new phenomenon, especially during crises. We'll often see sort of a flood of content. Often a lot of it is suspect um, and you kind of have to piece through or sift through the, the information to be able to get to the truth or what is actually happening. Sometimes that's not even quite possible, but I think that, you know, from the very beginning, it's it's been kind of a, a constant flood. I think it was, you know, sort of similar to the way social media attention ebbs and flows. There was, you know, and you can see it in the the graphs of of data from Instagram or Facebook, or I'm sure if the data was available publicly on X as well, but just sort of a massive spike at the very start and things sort of sort of spike periodically. But begin to taper off as well. And so I think that the type of content kind of follows a similar pattern. So this this massive spike of, you know, fake, old, recycled content, um, kind of right from the start. 
And uh, yeah, as you say, it's multiple different things. It's repurposing of inauthentic content, relabeling, I suppose, of stuff that's kind of previously happened and is being presented as if it's new. And it's also, I guess, AI gets thrown in the mix here as well. Is there any one that's worse than the other? Or has it all kind of just been, as you said, in this torrent, equally damaging for us? I mean, I think it all sort of serves a similar purpose of whether it's piling on a certain narrative, confirming a belief, confirming a, you know, in the way that sort of especially this Israel-Hamas conflict has shaped up and especially also even in um, Ukraine and Russia. In this video, Russian President Putin is announcing on state television that Russia is under attack. The message was also carried by several radio stations, but it is a fake. To be precise, a deep fake. Um, you know, pick your side and find the content that kind of either paints the other side in a damning light or um, sort of boosts the perspective that you already believe. And so I, I think all of this type of content kind of serves that similar purpose. I'd say some are harder to parse than others. It's fairly straightforward to be able to do a reverse Google image search, to be able to find, no, that is actually an image of a soldier with a child from 2019, uh, not from 2023. Um, whereas the the sort of AI generated content, particularly the audio, um, is a bit more difficult to parse because that involves sort of technical skill in some respects. The technical tools are maybe a little bit limited as well. But, you know, there's also, you have to at least generate that a little bit. There's sort of a, a barrier to production in some respects, especially the very high quality stuff. Um, so it's almost easier in some ways to recycle an old image. Um, and so we haven't actually seen a ton of generated content. We have seen some but, you know, just the kind of posting of old footage, old images, decontextualized content has, I think, been quite prominent, whereas the AI generated stuff, which is maybe a little bit more or becoming a little more difficult to parse, is, I'd say, a little bit secondary, though I have seen quite a bit of that as well. Mm. And of that repurposed content, you mentioned one of the the methods of kind of debunking it is reverse image searches or, or kind of reattaching that context that got shown. But is that within the knowledge base of the average person? Like, is is this a dangerous media environment for the average person who doesn't have that technology to be in? You know, it's funny because I, I think about kind of digital literacy steps and there's some research out there that looks at kind of who shares false claims, um, sort of what are the demographic features in the US. And one of the sort of statistically significant correlates of sharing false content is age mm. um, and sort of like digital native components. And that seems to be among the most significant that is kind of regularly cited. Other things sort of disappear in terms of their correlations, but that one kind of stands out. And so I think that stems in some ways from digital literacy. Um, we are already behind in digital literacy online, right? In Facebook, social media. And so, you know, now there is a new conversation that needs to be had about digital literacy. And so I think that those types of conversations and those types of sort of getting people up to speed in this space, um, I think are really, really important. But unfortunately, we haven't even cracked the just 
Facebook timeline component of it, right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, I do think it is within the skill set of everybody in terms of being able to do that Google search. Unfortunately, I don't think that our digital literacy tools and sort of the training people have to approach content online broadly, um, it, it definitely varies quite a bit. So if you're going to present Biden on the Hill, your, your first demand is essentially digital literacy classes for, for the elderly. I think it's digital literacy classes for everyone, mostly. And, you know, we've seen a little bit of this on kind of the the younger generation side is there's the assumption that because you are a digital native, it's very easy as well to be able to, oh, no, they'll be able to figure it out. They'll be able to find it. And so you kind of remove that element of skepticism. Uh, And so I think that it's, you know, across the spectrum in some ways, because we can assume people have it, they might not. Or we can assume they don't. And how could we ever, you know, build out a, a curriculum to be able to teach people? And so I think it it definitely spans across the spectrum. And it's such an emotional subject. And we know emotion is often tied in with the spreading of what used to be called fake news, uh, I guess, when we first kind of saw this uh, appear. Is that playing a big role here? Oh, I think, I mean, huge, huge role. I think this has been again, sort of from the beginnings of media time, um, kind of what spreads, it was the yellow journalism for a while, right? Um, the sort of shocking components, um, sort of uh, often fabricated in some some cases. Um, and so, you know, this sort of base instinct to, and then if we think about like cable news, what's on cable news, the nightly news, local news, it's the, the criminal next door. We love true crime. Um, what kinds of podcasts get like very popular is the serials. It's kind of these shocking stories. And so I think that that is really kind of a, a basic psychological component. And so when we see things, especially in these conflicts where um, there's really strong sort of visceral emotional reactions, and there's really, I think, horrifying images and horrifying stories coming out of this space, it's really easy, I think, to kind of have that knee-jerk reaction to the content and, you know, maybe not do that sort of background search to be able to vet what you're seeing. I'd love to get on in a second to kind of how we can maybe attune ourselves to to better deal with these things so that we don't spread dis and misinformation unwittingly. But more generally, uh, in this kind of information space, I mean, you, you hinted at this earlier in terms of you know X, if we can get the information about this, if we can actually get the data. Is this because of the kind of confluence of issues around social media because of how entrenched both sides in this conflict are because of the emotive nature of all of this. Have you seen a worse information environment online in your time researching this stuff? Um, I mean, I think that it's not, you know, I would be hesitant to say this is the worst I've mm. ever seen because it's really hard to sort of get a, a grasp on that without all of the data. It surely feels like quite intractable in some respects, for sure. And there are unique elements of this current moment that are making it particularly challenging. Um, some of those you've kind of 
mentioned um, a lot of changes on X, which are where people used to go um, quite regularly for this sort of on the ground perspective. There's, you know, and I know they've put in measures to like if something has additional context added to it, um, it doesn't get boosted now at this point and things like like changes like that. But there was sort of like a a monetization boom that happened with the the purchasing of blue check marks, this sort of pay for virality, what goes viral, let's go viral. Um then there was the element of paying people for their view count that all kind of funneled into this. And so these are sort of like micro changes that happened on the platform that sort of snowballed, especially at the beginning of this current moment to create this sort of um, space where all the things that were rising to the top. And I think there was some research about this that looked at like the viral videos. um, And a lot of it was these sort of, newly verified paid like they were paying for verification status and it was like something like 70 percent of the most viral misinformation spreading at the very beginning of the conflict was from these sort of blue checkmark verified accounts and so a lot of that i think comes from some of these micro changes we've seen also kind of a pulling back of content moderation practices um, more broadly. Some of that I think is, you know, in response to there's been a lot of sort of politicized scrutiny of companies, of researchers who were looking at this space during the 2020 elections. Um, And I think some of it is kind of the fallout from that, sort of pushing back against the type of openness of these platforms to be able to actually do research. I think there is some value, especially um, with the EU Digital Safety Act um, and some of the transparency reporting that they're requiring um, kind of can peel back some of those layers a little bit. But I do think that, you know, it's kind of a a strange confluence of changes, uh, lack of researcher access, the clear sort of emotional reactions of this current crisis that are really making this, I think, a, a complicated um, and particularly challenging information space. Because hmm. I guess the emotions are also tied up with propaganda on both sides. Like this is, these folks, and this isn't their first rodeo, essentially. They, they know how to try and push out messaging here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is, this is not the first rodeo. Um, it's kind of an evolution of the sort of information space contestation that has always happened. Um, And so I think that what works continues to work and sort of continues to to resonate on whichever sort of side of the conflict you come down on. And I think that there are just kind of new tools here that that can be deployed or previous limitations that maybe were, were sort of harder to parse that now are maybe a little bit more accessible. Everything now is disconnected. We don't have any internet. We don't have any kind of signals on our phones. We become totally isolated. The blackout there is causing absolute panic because normally after each bombardment or each raid, people would phone each other in Gaza to check that their relatives are okay. They can no longer do that with all communications having been cut off. Is there an element here also of location? We know it's been difficult to get in touch with folks within Gaza. We spoke earlier in the series to an expert in internet shutdowns, and I know he's been reporting on internet outages across Gaza over the course of the conflict. You mentioned kind of 
people filling in the gaps in the information vacuum. Is there something about this remoteness that is different to, for instance, the, the invasion of Ukraine where we had people literally TikToking from the front lines? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we are seeing some of the kind of Instagram, especially, I think, has kind of taken front and center in that regard. Um, but a lot of people on the ground in Gaza are sharing from Instagram. The Internet is, of course, a huge challenge, um, but we do see some of that for sure. And I think that they're, you know, kind of showing some of the, the damages that have been um, sort of the, the current state of damages, I think, is all really valuable kind of context for this conflict. Of course, you know, it's it's a safety challenge, especially for journalists. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the way that journalists have been able to kind of enter into the conflict zone is with the Israeli army. Um, and so, you know, in both contexts, I think, you know, there's a, a coloring of, oh, what did what did they permit you to share? But then also on the, the flip side of the coin from the sort of on the ground influencers, oh, what are you hiding? Um, and so I think that, you know, we get the same sort of level of complexity and the same sort of um, dismissiveness, depending on, again, which sort of which perspective the, the viewers may be more sympathetic to. Yeah, it, it's with any part of this world, it's always difficult to disentangle that element of it from anything else. Um, but with that in mind, then, is, is it possible for us to kind of identify the objective truth in this morass of information? How should we do it? I mean, I think there's a huge, huge role for the media to really step up in this space, um, for NGOs, to, especially those that are sort of kind of on the non-aligned side to play a huge role in sort of parsing through um, this sort of information mess um, to be able to get to the bottom of what is going on. Uh, the challenge is, is that, you know, especially with the newspapers and journalists, you, you want to get there first, right? There's a there's a profit incentive component to being the first on the ground to cover something. And so I think there's all these sorts of competing complexities to be able to stop and pause and be able to do that type of investigative scrutiny. Um, and so, it, it, you know, it's really hard because that's maybe not what's being rewarded by audiences, right? And so I think that there is a, a very important role for people like you, um, for people like me, I hope, um, for journalists, for unaligned NGOs to be able to be that voice that has some sort of credibility across these different perspectives. Um, but it's really, really hard. And you mentioned the kind of responsibility that you and I have on finding those truths and, and kind of highlighting them in this information space where you have such kind of confusing imagery. What is the toolkit for us to try and do it? If you see um, a, a photograph on social media of the impact of the bomb blast on the hospital in Gaza, how do you determine whether that is authentic, whether that's a video game clip that's been kind of disseminated elsewhere, whether it's the rare instance of AI generated stuff, or if it's from an entirely different country, an entirely different time. 
Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we all have our biases. Um, we all kind of, we all want to confirm the things that we think we believe, right? So that's very basic to want to find information that confirms what we think is true um, or discount information that runs against what we believe. Um, and so I think it's really important to recognize that bias and sort of stop it in action. Um, so if I see, you know, if I see some video that I think is like, oh, that just confirms everything that I needed to believe about the hospital explosion, maybe, maybe not um, kind of jumping to that conclusion, especially in the aftermath, I think of these really intense moments, um, waiting for a little bit more to come out beyond sort of the open source internet sleuth with the verified status that I've never heard of until the beginning of this conflict, right? So waiting, and I, and it's really hard because I know that people want to sort of signal in some respects that, you know, they're following, that they have a certain response to these moments to, to hardship, to trauma, um, but kind of waiting for a little bit more information to come out. And then maybe in the interim period, kind of exploring a little bit more, who is that open source person posting with a verified status that confirms that the, the bomb was from here? Um, what's their background? Is there sort of information about them? Have they talked about this before? Um, I think all of that is really important. Um, if the answer is no, then maybe don't send it to the WhatsApp thread. And so I think all of that is really critical because the virality fuels on that sort of shocking component. And what is viral is often the things that are the most outrageous, right? And so if we can not maybe contribute to that by just kind of taking that pause, uh, exploring a little bit more. If things aren't adding up, maybe don't send it. You can send it in a day, in two days, three days. It'll still be the same event. The conclusion might be the same or it might be different. And so I think that all of that is really, really important, um, especially in these really intense moments where often shocking viral content can be quite misleading. Mm. Are there any other kind of tips or tricks that we should be looking for to try and do this? Obviously, not everybody is going to become that OSINT expert yeah. with the blue tick. Hopefully, God knows we don't need any of those. <laughs> I mean, but I think, yeah, I think, uh, you know, the other aspect, and we haven't really touched on this because it's been sort of secondary, is that AI generated component. Artificial intelligence, with its easily accessed voice cloning and face swapping tools, is adding a new dimension to the political universe. If 1% of the images that we see coming out of Israel and Gaza are fake, that's enough to cast a shadow across everything, right? Because if we enter this world where it is possible to manipulate images, audio and video, well, then everything is in question. And I actually saw something today. It was um, a bunch of children in the middle of rubble um, in Gaza holding cats. Um, and it was on its way to going viral. It had that sort of emotional component. Um, I think when I saw it, it had something like 50,000 views, um, like 3,000 likes or something like that. If you just zoom in on one of those images very quickly, you see the children have six fingers. Um, and so I think that, you know, those are the kinds of digital literacy tools as well to be able to quickly 
suss out that maybe this image is sort of funky. There's something not right about it, but it does play on that sort of emotional component that that the element of sort of pausing is not in your favor, right? People will just forward because it's a really sad set of images of children with their pets and everyone loves pets and look at the, look at the sort of devastation around them. And certainly there are real images like that, but this is not one of them, right? Those children had six fingers. Um, And so I think that that's another thing to maybe kind of look for. Um, The challenge of course, is that if we sort of assume anything could be AI generated, that includes true things. Um, And so then we get into a very slippery slope where even things that are true can be sort of dismissed as AI generated. Yeah. And that weaponization of fake news over the last five plus years has become quite, quite a powerful tamping down of things like that. I'm I'm thinking in particular about the, the Gaza based influencer who's being claimed to have died several times uh, and things like that. I mean, what does his story tell us about kind of the information environment that we're in right now? Yeah, I mean, I I think it it just tells us how complicated this space is and how easy it is for rumors to spread and go viral. And so I think that's the really important place where journalists come in is because there is such a demand and such a supply problem to be able to leaf through that type of uncertainty, the rumors, the sort of myths or fear-mongering techniques, to be able to leaf through those types of claims, I think is really important. Um, Of course, there is always the challenge that the truth and the sort of hard facts um, are boring. Uh, They don't necessarily have that emotional resonance that the image of the the children with the cats does, right? Um, And so I think that you know, what what we can do in this space is put out quality information. And so that, you know, as people kind of understand and learn the tools, maybe they they can at least find the verifying content, right? Um, And so I think that that's really, really, really important is that in order for people to be able to do that type of research, we also have to have the factual content to confirm against. Do you ever feel like you're working against a kind of brick wall that's coming <laughs> towards you in in trying to do that verifiable factual content, the stuff that takes time and a lot of effort at a time when people don't have time and aren't really that bothered about a lot of effort? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's maybe not even a brick wall so much as like basic human behavior. Um, in terms of the way that our brains work with information. And so it's like maybe even more strongly rooted than that brick wall. like you could break down a brick wall i guess but you know to to break down years and thousands of years of basic human information processing is really really challenging and so i think that the more that people can become aware of these types of biases that we all hold and hopefully that's you know uh, one of the things that i try and contribute to this conversation is that all of this is not new 
it's very, very natural in terms of the way that we process information, the way that we have processed information. It's just that the tools are changing very rapidly um, and people need to kind of build that broader sense of awareness um, very quickly. And so I think hope, hopefully, you know, especially for informed sort of public people who are, you know, hoping or wanting to be able to get things right, um, that that can resonate. Hmm. I know that we've had this since time immemorial, the kind of <laughs> the, the emotional responses to this stuff, but is the poking and the prodding at the kind of emotional responses, the way that these social media platforms are designed to try and get us to feel and to sort of interact and to react and then share. Is is that a magnitude of difference or is this all just kind of the same stuff that we've had in the past, but just a new medium to do it on? Yeah, there has there was some research actually about this um, sort of looking at the algorithm I think it was on Facebook, um, but looking at the algorithm and whether it sort of contributed to this process, they didn't find much. I think it's a complicated space to research really rigorously and empirically. But, you know, I do think there is an element of if the goal is to get people to stay online, um, you want to show them things that interest them, things that they engage with. What do people engage with? People engage with content that is shocking. People engage with content that sort of pulls at the heartstrings. Um, and so whether it just kind of amplifies the sort of basic tendencies, sort of plays into what we already might do with a, a newspaper clipping back in the day or something like that, you know, I, I think that it's playing on something that is very real and ingrained in terms of the way we like to focus our attention on things. And so um, in that regard, I think that it kind of amplifies in some respects, but there's also um, only so much attention people can pay to things. And so um, when there is sort of just an information flooding, uh, people tend to, to tune out content that maybe otherwise would kind of challenge some of those beliefs. And so in some regards, I think that it is, um, you know, it, it can be a contributor in that regard. Mm. What else are we missing in this conversation? I mean, we've covered so much over the last sort of 25 plus minutes, but is, is there anything else that you think people like me, the media aren't covering around this information ecosystem and particularly the challenges being posed right now by the Israel Hamas war? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's just, it's really, really hard, especially from sort of the media perspective, because you have to deal with, you know, the sources that you have. Um, I think that especially in a context where there is sort of such deeply entrenched emotional reactions, it's like you can never get it right in some respects. Um, but I do think that that sort of anchoring is so valuable and that vetting process is so critical that, you know, even if it seems like it, it can never, you can never win, it is really, really vital. Um, you know, I think that there is complicating factor moving forward with the AI type of content um, that is going to be a challenge for sure. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that, that I think a lot about is that we've got 40 or some odd elections next year. Mm. Um, and so we're only beginning to, you know, the AI type of content hasn't really played much of a role here. It hasn't played a, a ton, uh, you know, it, it hasn't been 
this huge complicating factor. But I do think that there are spaces and we should be ready, especially for the sort of last minute, sort of October surprise type of events, things like that. Um, this idea that um, things that are actually true can just be kind of dismissed as false. Um, and so all those things, I think, will need a lot of attention um, and are sort of beginning to reveal themselves, especially in the context of this Israel-Hamas conflict. We see sort of things popping up here and there. There isn't that potential for, you know, an October surprise, but we do see that elsewhere. And so I think just kind of thinking about these various components and it's like another layer but, you know, not wholly dismissing the AI generated challenge, kind of giving it the appropriate weight, but then, you know, really kind of digging in and avoiding those same biases that we all have um, is really important too, in the context of recognizing that there's now a whole new source of content that could be created, um, especially that is particularly challenging to do that reverse Google image search. Yeah. Our job as ordinary people is getting much harder, but I guess the message there then is take a breath and think about what you're actually sharing. Yeah, I think take a breath and think about what you're actually sharing. And then also, especially things that are, and I think this is this is where I kind of continue to beat that drum or continue to sort of yell from the mountaintops is like, you know, the truth is boring, um, but that's what we should care about. Um, it's not going to pull on the heartstrings, but if if people generally do feel like that matters and not just sort of the cheerleading that is happening or that we see in any type of situation where there are kind of two sides, um, that should carry more weight. And so that, that's kind of where I land down is it doesn't matter which side is kind of in the right in the the fact checking moment it's it's what is in the right and if it's the boring thing that's all the better like very happy for things to be boring well this conversation has been far from that um valerie thank you so much for joining us of course thank you for having me Thanks for listening to Tectonic, a new podcast from Article 19. We hope you'll join us for future episodes, which we'll release every fortnight, and look at the wide variety of ways that these seismic shifts we're currently seeing in technology can affect our freedom of expression. I'm Chris Stoker-Walker. Your producers this episode were Christopher Hooten and Nicola Kelly, with theme music and original score by Julian Wharton. If you would like to leave us a star rating or review wherever you're listening, that would be hugely appreciated. It really makes a difference to our show. Thank you, and see you next time.